0: And welcome to the next episode of the Slalom Daily Dose. I'm your host, Perti Canodia, and today we're talking about how do we make money in health technology? And my guest is one of my favorite people, Anne de Geist, founder of Health Tech Capital. Anne, welcome.
1: Thank you for so much for inviting me. I'm absolutely delighted to share some of my hard-learned wisdom. And we cannot wait years. to hear. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of scars.
0: <laughs> yeah. So with that, actually, uh, you can call it scars, or I'm going to call it the hats that you worn to get the scars. But I understand that you have worn multiple hats across med tech, health tech, and life sciences companies. Could you please describe with us, describe to us the different hats that you worn?
1: Yes, um, so when I started my career I first started you know as a manager and executive uh, in companies and then quickly went on the entrepreneurial side and when I was in my 20s I joined a company called uh, Nelcor, which launched Post-Oxymetry worldwide so I launched that product worldwide and and really got the bug on how do you start companies. As a result of that, I started my own company called Medpool and uh, was uh, founding uh, VP marketing for a company called OmniCell, which is still publicly traded. And I really got intrigued uh, after you've done a company, it's a lot of work, if I could diversify my risk. And so I started uh, a company 35 years ago called Medstars, which I still have today. Uh, with the idea that I was going to develop a new sector called health tech. And the idea behind that, that sector there was to take technology from the computer and telecommunication industry, which I had learned in my first company after Harvard Business School, mm-hmm. uh, into problem and workflow that I had learned from Nelcor in the healthcare side. And the idea behind it was to really identify uh, up-and-coming young entrepreneurs, typically a team of two, so really early, Mm -hmm. uh, mentor them, and be like a business architect for them in coming up with business models as a barrier of entry um, in, in developing this new sector called health tech, which is how do we change healthcare delivery? and I also was a strategic advisor for large corporations who were very intrigued in acquiring these companies or or trying to get what's called white space which is developing new categories uh, for their companies there. As I Kind of got lucky or successful and got like nine IPOs and and over fifteen billion dollars in market being created by those companies I was helping as an executive or as a as an advisor uh, and when I say advisor I was working like one third of my time for each of these companies there wow. so I was you know kind of mm-hmm. really like a part time executive in those companies there I became an angel investor and I've invested in forty companies over the last thirty five years and then became a chairman of the life Science, uh, medical device screening tool and then started my own health tech capital uh, um, angel group and on my spare time when the digital health uh, industry started I decided to run a conference called the health tech conference with the idea you that had
0: a spare time
1: I had a spare time <laughs> uh, and as a mom too that was interesting <laughs> and having two dogs Um, And a husband, I should say, I have a husband, I'm going to be in trouble today. You live life. (laughs) I live life. And I decided I wish to show leadership because I was a speaker in the keynote at several of these early digital health companies, uh, conferences. And everybody was just saying, have this great product to sell healthcare. And they had the two minutes of glory, throwing the spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. And I say, that's the wrong way of building a new sector. What we need Mm -hmm. to do is asking the customer where their needs are. So in the first year in 2012 at the health tech conference we had the CEO of the Hospital of UCSF in Stanford and key people from Dignity and and Kaiser. In the second year we added a senior executive from the Humana and and the Aetna. In the third year we added employers like IBM, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also in my spare time uh, I'm a, a public board members or have been on board of public and private companies and nonprofits. So. So I've been on every side of the table, which I think is critical to really understanding uh, the perspective to really help the entrepreneur be successful.
0: Yeah. First of all, wow. And thank you for sharing your diverse expertise. There are so many different ways I can shape this conversation But for the sake of our listeners and making sure that they grasp depth in one area perhaps of all the the wide range of knowledge that you have, maybe we can focus on the angel investor aspect. Um, As you you mentioned that, you mentioned angel investor, you mentioned health tech capital. So we're gonna dive deep into some of these areas. To begin with, let's understand what is an angel investor? What do they do? And how is it different from another popular term called venture capital?
1: Yeah, great questions. Uh, First, we don't have wings. It's a kind of a fake story (laughs) there. Uh, But seriously, an angel uh, is really a high net worth individual defined in the US by having over a million dollars, for example, in net worth, who invest directly their own money into a company that they believe are very promising. In exchange, they get stock, typically it's called preferred stock, mm-hmm. uh, into the company there, which they hope that uh, five to seven years later may be worth more money than when they pay for. Uh, many of those angels entrepreneur themselves, so they can bring in addition to money, a lot of expertise, networks, uh, and experience there. And there are around 300,000 angel investors in the U.S., in 2014, I think it's last last uh, information recorded, they invested $24 billion as opposed to $47 billion by the venture industry. So they're an essential part. Mm-hmm. They're enabling first investor into a startups. And so let's compare this to the VCs. So a, a typical venture capitalist, they raise money from large institutions. Uh, it could be a pension fund. And they invest those capital typically at a later stage. It's mm-hmm. usually when a company has had some validation on the product or on the market side. I'm going to give you some example of company back that we're backed by, started by Angel Investor. These include Google, Yahoo, Amazon, Starbucks, Facebook, Costco, and PayPal. And that's on the consumer side. Yeah. Uh, on the healthcare side, there's a long list also. Right. And so I think it's important to understand that angel lose money 65 to 70% of the time. And when I say that, these are statistically recorded information. It's not just coming out of my my head. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a result of that, sophisticated angel investors have to invest at least 10 times in 10 different companies to get what's called diversification, because typically you may get one or two of those investments to give the return for everything else. For example, the famous unicorn, which is the billion-dollar exit, and somehow I got nine of them, so statistically it's impossible. But statistically, Unicorn is 0.3% of the time. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the deal that gives you... a a 10x return, that may be 4 to 5% of the times. Mm-hmm. So what people need to understand is that the reason why we basically invest at low valuations is because we need to find out one winner that pays That's for right. all the bad ones. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to find those because you have to kiss what we call a 100 frogs to find a good one. So we've created angel groups and the reason for the angel groups, therefore you can share the load of doing the due diligence and identifying the deals as a group, you still make your personal investment decision. And that's one of the reasons I started Health the Capital so that we had a, a smarter ecosystem there to identify the good company and helping them with the bigger networks and also more capital. Mm-hmm. And, but I think it was really important with the value of the angel group is that they just don't write you a check. If you're looking for that, that's the wrong place to go. They are very active mentors. They will help you opening up their networks. They will open that networks to potential employees or to maybe to potential partnerships and in in the future to potential investors like a venture capitalist.
0: Right. And you mentioned, you know, some of the key um, insights here are early versus late stage. So as angel investor, you're truly coming in early and taking that risk and putting that bet on that entrepreneur and their innovation. And uh, you mentioned that you know, in terms of the 10x, you have about, typically, it's 4% of the deals that sees a 10x return. But I know early on in the conversation, not just now, but off the record, you mentioned, if I can just share, on the record, you had about 26% of the deals that gave you a 10x return. And I think a huge reason of why that's successful and, and why that is what you just mentioned is the mentorship and the active involvement that you have and and the part where you as Angel Investor Network open up your own networks and actively mentoring these startups and entrepreneurs to help them shape their company to be a successful one.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, I I just yesterday looked because I knew we're coming here Mm -hmm. and I have invested uh, in over 40 companies the company Mm -hmm. where I was passive where I just invested via an entity like I've been a limited in some venture firms Mm -hmm. uh, you know I lost money or just I had no um, uh, engagement with those company there the company where I was spending 20-30% of my time these Mm -hmm. are the one where I get the 50x returns Mm -hmm. and so I think that that's you know people need to understand in the audience there, that you're not looking for money, you're looking for partners to mm-hmm. get you for the roller coasters of building a company. You want somebody to help you get back up when you're depressed and bring you back down when you have a bit manic. Love that. And Love that, and that's the key. You're looking yeah. for a partner in the journey.
0: Yeah, angel investors are your partner.
1: Yes, we are,
0: <laughs> at least um, the good ones. Yeah, totally. And, and to that point, you mentioned Health Tech Capital, which is the group that you founded, right? So, maybe you can share with our listeners. Why you founded Health Tech Capital, I think we have a sense now from what you just shared in terms of the need that you identified in the industry, but maybe elaborate on that and share why you founded it and and what is the composition of this group.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you remember, for uh, I started the word health tech 35 years ago. Right. And really for 30 years, I was this lone, crazy Belgian woman that people wondered <laughs> what she was doing. And then she became successful and unlucky, then become, maybe there's a business here. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and what I learned from uh, this, this company I was really privileged to work with is that it required three skill sets. One is to understand healthcare, the FDA, the payment, the workflows, and all the challenges of the healthcare system. Number two, understanding technology so you don't take information from healthcare to put on a smartphone, but use smartphone and mobility to change your business model and how you deliver healthcare. And the third part, and that's the true holy grail of healthcare, is how do you get people to change behavior? Period. And historically, we've never done that. Mm-hmm. We have given a product to a doctor and let them figure this out, and we know that didn't work very well. Mm-hmm. And so now using social media and consumer engagement, that is really the big challenge there is how we get this expertise. And nobody had these three sets of expertise. So the idea mm-hmm. is create a group where people come from the technology side, the consumer side, and the healthcare side together together, uh, where two-thirds of the group are accredited investors. So we, we write checks and they successful entrepreneurs in their own rights. And then what's unique is one-third of our members are large corporations. And these are people like Johnson & Johnson's and Phillips and Merck and Roche Diagnostic just joined, them, uh, joined us. And what they want is that they want not only a pulse of what could be disruptive in their industry, but more importantly, they want to partner with this company much earlier than historically we've done.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think early partnership is key. You know, some of the key insights you just dropped for us is understanding that FDA workflow, understanding how do you truly utilize the technology and drive change in behavior, and that's kind of the key reason why you as a group exist, right? Um, I think with that in mind, you know, as we think about the industry and as we think about the innovations in health tech, I think we see a lot that's happening, right? The industry as a whole has accelerated and there is a lot happening. But when it comes to success, when it comes to actually making it, one of the big things that's been talked about in the industry is who pays for all of this innovation that's happening. Would you please share with us? What are some of your perspectives around how do you look at payment models, business models in this industry?
1: Yeah, that's a critical question. Uh, Health Tech Capital has invested in 35 companies, and I see there's five buckets on who pays. And it's the five Ps. And one is the providers. So these are the hospitals and clinics. Number two are the patients. That's you and me. Uh, number three are the payers. These are the Aetna, the Humana, the Medicare. Number four are the employers. These are like the IBM. And number five is Pharma, the Genentech, and all of that. And, and we did an analysis across the board, and, and there were several lessons that we learned. Uh, the first one is that in the company that failed, the product always worked but they failed because of the business models and the ability to scale up. So mm-hmm. let's look a little bit deeper into the five buckets. So yeah. in, 19, in, in 2012, uh, when digital health kind of got discovered mm-hmm. by the other in- investors, um, there was an expectation uh, that where you could make money was first with the patient, If you look where the money was invested and the number of startups that were hitting the press, that were the darling of this is the poster child of digital health, they were a company like the Fitbit. That was the idea, that Fitbit had been very successful at that time. And number two on the list was let's kind of invest products for the providers because the providers, remember the hospitals and the clinics, that's 60% of the $1 trillion spent in the U.S., so therefore that's where the money is. Uh, the third uh, on the list in descending order was how can we sell something that the payers, so the insurance industry, would be willing to pay for. Mm-hmm. And the concern there at the time was to say, well, the payers, historically, they want a lot of data. They want a validation on the products on thousands of pages for several years. And, of course, no startups can afford that. That's why they were number three on the list. Number four on the list was the employers because the employers are the ultimate payers of healthcare costs in the U.S. We're the only country in the world where healthcare is being paid by the employers. Yeah. But they were fragmented. Some mm-hmm. were early adopters and they were putting clinics and they were trying things. But most people, that's not their business is mm-hmm. not to manage the healthcare of the employees. And at the bottom of the list at the time was pharma because pharma is were very big, consolidated into some, you know, dozen large companies They were really focusing on developing new drugs because that's what they're good at. Mm -hmm. The reality now in 2019 is that if you look where people have been successful and where the new money is being invested in today, it's flip-flop. We Mm. totally change Okay. that list of of the five payers. So now on top of the list, the most successful company, are people are selling to what's called digital pharma, which is the pharmaceutical industry is paying for that. And their value proposition is not necessarily to develop new drugs, but to decrease cost. And they do that by improving the productivity of their sales force. That's a company's public, very successful. Mm-hmm. Or they're basically doing it to improve the effectiveness of clinical trials, which again is all about cost. You know, if you can doing a clinical trials of 2,000 patients instead of 3,000 doing it faster. That's millions of dollars to the bottom line.
0: That's right. And also a larger impact on the patient. You know, The more you're able to reduce costs, the more you're able to add value ultimately back to the patient.
1: And hopefully get the drugs and approved get the drugs faster. faster. Yeah. So the number one there, if you look about what's the hot area right now, we're having a lot of tractions with revenues being the measure, you know, is pharma. Number two mm-hmm. are the payers. Because yeah. what people discover is that if you you can show a value proposition where you save the payers money and you do it in a way that's clinically validated, so it's done by an independent party there and maybe peer-reviewed articles there, then it's extremely sticky and everybody else jumps onto the wagon and those companies, they take a couple of years, but then they explode. And the third sector there then became the employers, where people discovered that you had several early adopters, like the Facebook and the Google. They create like a college campus atmosphere when they give you pretty much all the new healthcare tools that you can think of. But the rest of the market is very fragmented and hard to get to. The fourth that dropped on the list, they were the providers, because people discovered that the hospitals have very low profit margins. They make a few percentage points, if that. And it's a two to three year selling cycle and you have to get a direct sales force, which is very expensive. Pensive, yeah. And at the bottom of this whole pile, guess what? The patience. Patients. Because as we all know, we all have had a Fitbit that's probably in our washing machine by now. <laughs> um, just kidding. And but with Probably these, mine too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But probably what they discover is that people are willing to pay like $100 as an impulse purchase. It's kind of the toy industry. It's good for a year, and then it disappears. Mm-hmm. The only one that has been extremely successful in that space is Apple. But Apple has this magic Brand and marketing skills mm-hmm. that they can create new categories. Mm-hmm. But other people have tried to develop a business model. 90% of the company who started doing direct-to-consumer have pivoted to b 2 b to c which means that they're selling to business who then sell to the consumer mm-hmm.
0: there. Yeah. I think as you were talking, you know, one of the key things that we learned, as you mentioned, is in 2012, the the, the five P's being patient, provider, payer, You know the employers and the pharma, and then in 2019 today, it's kind of flipped, right? Which I think is very insightful. Hopefully for entrepreneurs that are now trying to create new, innovative, creating new innovative solutions, and hopefully they can implement the right business models that will make those solutions successful, right? Um, I want to dive a little bit deeper. So we talked a little bit about. You mentioned that you know you mentioned selling cycles you mentioned that you know the, the solution sticks and then the the pairs you know it just takes off and then the pair loves it uh, you know I, I can also think about it from the perspective of well they're doing this because they're getting a return on their investment right and then there is a huge ROI component and I feel like that's such an important element of making things successful right Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about how do you
1: measure ROI? Yeah, ROI, you have to understand what's the time space. And it's not just saying, I, you pay me a dollar for this new product and I save $3 and I keep two and you get one. Now, it's kind of the ratio people are talking about. You know, it's, it's that for every dollar you pay, you expect to save $2. The question is, into what time period? And that's why a lot of entrepreneurs are misunderstanding the stakeholders. So let's look at the perspective of a hospital. A Hospitals, they have you for 4.5 days on the average length of stays. Let's add another 30 days for readmission risk. So let's assume it's a time period of 60 days you have to do a return on investment. That is very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Then let's look at the next level on the time horizon. These are the payers. The average commercial payers keep you for two and a half years, That's just because people change insurance you know, for the employers quite often. So as a result of that, their rule of thumb is that they have to save money in less than one year. And they have to do it in a complex population, so multiple diseases, multiple demographics. So Mm -hmm. you need to show to them in large population groups that you can achieve this in a way that's predictable before they scale it up to 15 million population coverage, for example. Mm -hmm. Then the third one that's a little bit longer are the employers, because the employers on the average, they keep you four to five years. The employer has a different perspective. It's not just decreasing the cost of healthcare, but more importantly, increasing productivity, making sure you come up with better tools or products that the company is making, improving patient, uh, the customer satisfactions. And as rete- as a result of that, increasing employee retention.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: their perspective is not hardcore dollars; it's taking all of this all together. Yeah. Um, and then and then ultimately, we the consumer we have a thirty or forty years horizon, but we all know that's not the way we think. And so, understanding the ROI from the perspective of who pays is essential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of people are missing. You know, they have a cool products, but that doesn't mean it saves money to the person who's going to pay for it.
0: Yeah, I I think, thank you for sharing that. That, That's so insightful. You know, we we talked a lot about the business model and who's paying, you know, there's so many other elements that can make or break a startup, right? Maybe let's talk about what are some of the key elements that you think either makes or breaks a startup?
1: Well, most companies in the Valley fall in love with their technology. And, and that's because typically the company is started by a technologist. Mm-hmm. And when they're under stress, guess what they do? They improve the features. And <laughs> and in reality, uh, nobody pays for technology. What they do is that we buy a solution to a pain point. That's right. And I think a successful company really spend more time understanding the pain point. The challenge of health tech is not like in the consumer space where there's one consumer and you understand their pain point, is there's multiple stakeholders. So you need to understand the pain point from the viewpoint of the patient, maybe the family and the caregiver, maybe the nurse, maybe the physicians, who is paying for it. That could be the hospitals, it could be the pa- it could be an insurance industry or the employers. It's very complex. Mm-hmm. And so I think how do we get a person engaged in retaining them, whoever the user is? Very often it's the patient. Mm-hmm. is essential because historically that has been very poor. We all know that only 50% of the patient utilize their medication correctly, even in cancer treatment, which is yeah. kind of scary, yes. mm-hmm. or congestive heart failures.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you get the providers to pay? Well, we just talked about the time frame it being very, very different, and the need for them to have a lot of the data. Uh, it turns out on the provider side, you need a direct sales force. That's very expensive. So I see people trying to sell a $50,000 to a hospital, and they say, you cannot make money. It costs you $250,000 to acquire them. Understanding what's called the cost of acquisition and the long-term value, not just for the consumer side, but taking that concept into all the different sectors. So, and then how do you scale up? You know, very often the entrepreneur is very charismatic. You know, mm-hmm. he's like you. You know, he's there <laughs> with energy, and and you cannot clone them. You have to hire right. salespeople, mm-hmm. and and so you have to get a story that that makes sense, and you need to to have an entry point, and you do that by building on Salesforce. That's a lot of venture money. I that mean, that's very expensive. Uh, Do you try to do partnership? Well, most distributors, for example, are terrible at concept sell. Do you do with strategic partnership with a large corporation? How do you get their attention? Mm -hmm. Uh, So all of these issues is usually why the company fail. And then you put on top of that the people issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we did an analysis of a company who failed at health tech capital. The product always worked, and the customer always loved it. So we got that one right. Mm-hmm. Where we typically find out there was a problem is on the execution. And the execution was, or the team, they couldn't scale up. They were not listening to the feedback that things were not working well, so they were not you know open-minded and flexible. and Or they had the wrong investors. And, and this is something I've talked about. Uh, publicly, is that when people raise too much capital too early and they're still trying to define what is the cookie they're making and they haven't fully figured out the cookie cutter, which is the business models, and they scale up too quickly, you cannot recover if you have it wrong. Yeah. And if you look at the company who are being quietly acquired in M&A acquisition there with undisclosed amount, this is a company raised 30 $40, 50000000 million of venture capitals and they had the wrong model. Mm-hmm. And if you go up at 100 miles over the cliff, it's a very bad landing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And somebody needs to actually share the, speak the hard truth and, and, and be able to share um, the, the good feedback so that they can iterate. And, and the, But the most important thing is the team needs to be open-minded to take the feedback. So I think some of the key things that you mentioned over there is understanding pain points from the different players in the ecosystem and be able to cater to those pain points and address those pain points, whether it's engaging the users or understanding what the right business model is to be able to actually figure out how you're gonna get paid for the solution that you just created. I I think that that requires a a good business architect.
1: Yeah, and and that's exactly right on. I mean, is that if you're building a house, you don't hire a plumber. Mm -hmm. You first have to figure out what are you building that's right how does it look like and that's Mm -hmm. why i i I like the word business architect because Mm -hmm. it's looking at all these components you're not the one building and putting all All the bricks, Mm -hmm. but you have the vision of what it's going to look like, what's the view from the different perspective of your neighbors, what type of materials do you need, Mm -hmm. and then you hire the people to execute. Mm -hmm. And I think very often here there's a rush for that cool technology we have, not really understanding what is the business, and therefore the architect concept, which in my mind is right brain as opposed to traditional Valley, which is left brain, which mm-hmm. is more on the technology side, is essential, you need both sides. You need both, that's right. Um, with that in mind,
0: I think it would be interesting for our listeners to understand, you know, having seen all the different pain points and the solutions as part of the investments that you've done in health tech capital, share with us some of the investments that you've seen being successful and why they were successful, like the pain points they were addressing, the business model that they adopted, what made them successful?
1: So historically in, in some of the the big company I had huge exit with, what they really did is that they understood the workflows. So like for example, Pixis, we look at the, the nursing workflow on how do we make sure we give the right drugs to the right patient at the right time and move the inventory. We took the concept of ATM of banking, which is remote inventory management of cash and modified for putting drugs in them. And so very often, you don't have to develop new technology. You just can take existing technology from another industry. In this case, it was the banking industry. And you adapted it to the healthcare side. Coming out of that came two huge companies, Pixis, which was sold for a billion dollars, and OmniCell, which is still publicly traded for a few billion dollars there. So but the key was understanding the workflows and how you create value for the pharmacists, the hospitals, and the vendors. In, in these days today, let's look forward in some of the investment we have made. Taking that same philosophy there, mm-hmm. uh, let me mention uh, uh, three companies, because... We have to understand that as we're shifting who we're selling to from a physician, which is very left brain, give me data, give me clinical data, to the consumer. And the consumer the patient, they're consumer ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah. They don't want to be defined by their diseases. You don't introduce yourself, say I have a pancreas problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you are Mrs. Jones and you know and ninety nine percent of the time you don't want to talk about the fact you have diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so what they want is tools to manage twenty four by seven their health, not their diseases. Their health. Right. They want my disease is not my identity. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so in that concept, uh, one company that, that's in our portfolio company is a company called My Health Team. Their business model is, is, is giving a voice to the patient. And they have 2 million patients that are organized by 33 different disease-related social networks. So they can have a safe place where they can basically support each other. And, and their business model is to allow pharma to, co- to connect with and activate, what's called patient activation, their products there by educating them. Um, and so, so I think they're one of the most successful uh, companies there in enabling the consumer and the patients to have a voice that's unique to, to, to their disease category there. And then... Not just dealing with the drugs, dealing with every aspect of the disease, mm-hmm. um, and then having a solid business
0: model in terms of working with pharma. So correct. again, how do you, who pays for this? Correct, and they identified the right business model to implement.
1: So another one, which in this case I'm going to pick a different one. They were selling to the payers. Uh, this is a company called Wildflower Health. So they first started by working with the health plan to help a young teenager uh, navigate uh, pregnancy digitally. And what I mean by that is that 50% of the pregnancy in the U.S. are for people under Medicaid. And so very often they were not really seeing OB early enough, and then you had complications like neonatal intensive care units or, or early labor, which creates some, some, some risk for the mom and the baby. So what they did is that they used social tools and digital tools like we talked about you know, mm-hmm. over mobile phones mm-hmm. to engage those patients much earlier and then change their behaviors and therefore change the outcome. And they've been very successful doing that, and now they have evolved their platform, and so they're being paid by the blues, and to now cover over 15 million Americans, not just for pregnancy, but pretty much for everything that a, mo- a mother and a woman will care about, which mm-hmm. is – family planning, uh, taking care of the children there. And at the end of the day, the woman is the chief medical officer of the house. So what you see is that you start very specific, you define your pain point, you resolve it, you show it works, then you develop a platform and you scale it up. Mm -hmm. And now you have the relationship and the trust with the payers. A third company who has been very successful in a similar manner uh, and who has created this new master uh, category called digital therapeutics is a company called Omada Health, and I was the first. Who one doesn't know Omada Health in the know, industry? No, <laughs> I no. I was, I was blessed to be one of their first advisor and investor. And what they did, which was brilliant, is that. They took a technology that had been proven at at the YMCA, you go there once a week like a Weight Watchers. And of course, nobody does that for 15 weeks. Mm-hmm. But they took that concept, which was validated, and put it over social interaction using your phone uh, and and allow people to be individualized so that you can get different people interacting differently and get them to all change behavior. And what they did that was brilliant is that the first I was the employers, because the employers were more early adopters, then they went at risk as they got the data and they say, okay, you pay me X now and after sixteen weeks if the person lose five percent of their body weight for pre-diabetes there because that was proven that has a fifty percent lower risk of converting into diabetic, you know, then you pay me more money. Mm-hmm. And by taking that risk, they 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 changed the way the payers were willing to look at deals instead of waiting for a lot of the data. Mm-hmm. And they engaged the payers. So in their case, the style was the employer, got the data, went at risk. And then ex- expanded their business models on the on the payer side in the same way that Wildflower Health and My Health Team did. They, they start with one pain point and then expanding to a platform.
0: Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing um, these distinct examples. Everything from My Health Teams, you know, utilizing a pharma based model to again getting paid. Wildflower Health having a payer based model, and then. Omada Health, whom, again, everybody sees as a company that everybody, you know, treats it as a model that they want to mimic or, you know, follow, going from employer-based to payer-based model when it comes to payment. And and you being an investor in those companies, I'm sure they've benefited from your wealth of knowledge and expertise and, and mentorship. Um, so thank you for for sharing that. You know, we talk a lot about the different players in the industry, Um, everyone from uh, provider to payers to patients. And um, this whole ecosystem is working together, right? And then there are different kinds of partnerships that are happening. I'm wondering from your perspective, if you can share with us at a high level, how do you see the partnership in this ecosystem evolving?
1: Yeah, excellent question. Historically, to kind of get perspective, Uh, In traditional medical devices and biotech, which is a lot of those companies who are the large strategics, they were just doing what I call the wait and buy. And so most, if you remember, those companies have product rest. So you validate the product, you go for the FDA, you get the key opinion leaders to validate that this is a peer-reviewed article and this really works, and then they buy you, and then they scale it up, you know, for their sales force and all of that. So it was like... In this space, now it's the reverse because we have a low product risk. It doesn't take that much time to get the product you know, to be to a level you can test it, so maybe a year, not even that, as opposed to five, seven, ten years before. Mm-hmm. And, so, and some of these models can be very, very disruptive. And as we're going to bundle payment, and we're hoping to get to a different type of payment system in healthcare. There's still a question mark on how that's evolving. Mm-hmm. What you've seen right now is the strategic are getting involved much earlier then no longer wait and buy they are more let's engage and learn mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily to acquire but to work with yeah. and, and so like far a partner together it's a partner together because it could be a, an adjunct uh, what's called beyond the pill you mm-hmm. know it's something that you add to improve compliance let's say on the pharma side on the payer side the discoveries that if I can get people to change behavior earlier before they're really sick Guess what? I pay less money yeah. on my claims. So you see the United Health were much more aggressive. Not all of them, you know, just different mm-hmm. sectors are more mm-hmm. aggressive than that. So what we have seen is that solutions that show increased engagement and retention, i.e. you can get the patient to activate and be there and you can show some lower data cost everybody's jumping on the wagon much earlier than we used to see before
0: yeah because at the end of the day it's the patient that is much healthy and living a healthy life so again tying it back to the patient and knowing that at the end of the day it's serving the patient right so this ecosystem is coming together and partnering early on to ultimately so that we can live a healthy life
1: hopefully longer but what I see is an more open-mindedness and and flexibility from the strategic. We five years ago say, oh, this is like e-health. The whole thing will go away like the dot-com where they finally recognize this is a new category. And this Mm -hmm. category can be billion-dollar size and this could impact their core business and they have to get engaged. I Mm -hmm. mean, that's the fundamental shift is that... That health tech is here to stay, yeah. and, and like I used to joke, it's not trying to find a needle in a haystack; it's a haystack of needles. There's a lot of problems to solve, <laughs> and we need a we need the whole village, if not a whole city, to fix this.
0: That's right. That's right. You know, th- this conversation is so interesting; I can keep going. So I'll start to now wind down, and maybe um, as we wind down, let's let's understand what are the top three lessons. You know, in this. Wealth of expertise that you have across the board, across you know, in the past decades. Maybe share your top three levels learned lessons learned, um, you know, from from your journey.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I historically, like everybody else, I fell fall in love with some cool technologies, and that's where (laughs) I had my biggest losses. Mm -hmm. So, like everything else, it's not about the technology; it's about the pain point. I'm very comfortable with pain points that haven't been found yet and markets that don't exist because I've learned I can create those markets and protect them and build very big companies there. Then it goes into can the team execute. And even when the product works, uh, if the team fights with each other or uh, they are not able to scale up, that's where they they have failed. And then the lessons I've learned also, which may be a surprise, is that I invest in a company that were really great, and then they, invet- they later after I invested, they got the wrong investors. Mm-hmm. And I mean by the wrong investors, is and I've had those discussions at the boards, where people have the wrong expertise or the wrong mindset. And they force the company to scale up too quickly there, they have insane assumption when they launch the products, and they spend at the level of a $50 million revenue, when in reality they get a million, and that's usually fatal. And so having the right partners who is there in that journey all the way for the roller coaster there, who has the experience of what is a real problem versus something that's fixable, is essential there. And, and I think as the venture industry has evolved from 20 or 30 years ago, 30 years ago people were entrepreneurs in their own right who use their own money and they, Organize this as a partnership, this was the Kleiner and the Perkins and the Arthur Rock, to now people who are young MBA, PhDs and MDs who have never really worked in a big company, that expertise of helping the entrepreneur for the roller coaster has disappeared from some of these large venture firms. So at time, it, if you have a veteran of the venture industry, they're wonderful, they can be incredible, and at times they can be destructive if you have the wrong partner.
0: Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. There is just so much in there. You know, don't fall in love with technology. I think it's very, very clear. It's kind of the key message for the entrepreneurs here, really thinking about the problem. You know, I've been in the consulting world for some time now, and um, really understanding the problem and being crystal clear is the very first step in addressing and finding what that right solution might be. So thank you again for that. Um, Again, as we're winding down, some few more questions for you. What have been some of the formative experiences in your life? I also call it enlightening experiences.
1: Yeah, I, I have a keynote uh, that I do about my pearls of wisdom, but I'll just take one of them. I love that. <laughs> and, and, and it was interesting is how you can turn lemon into a lemonade that became gold. And, and um, so when I graduated from Harvard Business School, I went to a Fortune 500 company in the Valley, and it was a very technology focused company. And I became the first woman in sales. And And what happened there is that uh, they gave me a territory where I had no product and no customers, so I couldn't screw up. Mm -hmm. And no bosses because it was kind of uh, uh, an, an issue for the boss to have a woman in his team. And so that turned out to be a blessing because I was left alone. And so what I did is that I was the beginning of the computer, inter- computer industry in 1980. So I went to the trade show of the Intel and the National Semiconductor. And I mm-hmm. took to the marketing manager in the booth. And I said, what's your biggest problem in selling your product? And marketing people love to talk. That's and right. So they told me all their problems. Then I will turn around, go to the VP of Engineering, and I says, you know, I'm t- working with this cool, you know, military uh, technology company there. We're developing products for the computer industry, and I'm t- wait, working with your competition there. I know you're very busy, but is there an engineer under you I could talk to? And that worked every time. And 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 what? I, and then I work with R and D in developing new products. And that experience, which I did over two years and several, you know, very successful product came out of that, became my really uh, my, my my business school of entrepreneurship in the real world, mm-hmm. which is really focusing on the pain point, which may not be visible, talking to the right person, which may not be the person you sell to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wooing the R&D so that they will spend some time with this crazy woman uh, idea of a new product there, and mm-hmm. and uh, and then um, and then as soon as I became successful there then all my boss showed up so so that's when I left <laughs> and then I went to Nelcore and then mm-hmm. history was made by launching pulse oximetry yeah,
0: yeah I, I love that you know turning the lemon into a lemonade into the gold
1: and, and you learn the art in and, the real world and, 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 and behind every entrepreneurs uh, they failed before the difference between the one that is very successful and is the people learn from the prior failures. That's right. And they didn't blame other people. They learn from it. They make a mistake once, but not twice. That's the art of entrepreneurship. We all have had failures and really stupid things we did. Mm -hmm. We just don't repeat them. That's right. We learn from it and we iterate. That's
0: what it's about. Well, my, my last two questions for you. What's the most exciting healthcare technology you use today?
1: I hate to say it's
0: my Apple watch. (laughs) Why am I not surprised? (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Um, And the very last one, what is Anne like when you're not investing or mentoring? I know you have, you wear so many hats. So what do you do outside when you're not investing and mentoring in a formal capacity?
1: Yeah, I have, a, I have different uh, left brain, right brain. I'm doing this on purpose there because you know when you work in healthcare, you learn it's really important to balance that. And so on the right brain side, I have my two dogs. I have two German shepherds. I take them everywhere. Uh, I also uh, do some drawings on my iPad. Uh, and I've seen them And they're beautiful And yeah Go to adegaze.com And uh, I print them On aluminum And they're really Very unique And I just This year For the first time I've been invited To three arts fair You know By jury So we'll mm-hmm. see How that works Yeah And I am also like To mentor young people Not necessarily women You know I'm also doing men But you know I would say The majority are women There and, uh, and it's kind of fun To watch the journey And grow And become very successful In their own rights and in fact, at the Health Capital, we have an analyst-in-residence program there. We have people who have just graduated from business school or PhDs or medical schools, and they work with us as interns for a couple of years to help us you know, see the viewpoint of the investors. And then the last thing I do is that I'm also on some nonprofit boards. I'm on the board of Harvard Business School of North California. Well. That's that's amazing.
0: Thanks so much for, for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. Um, not only are you an awesome, awesome investor, mentor in a professional capacity, you're clearly an artist and a very accomplished artist from, from the art that I have seen at least. And thanks for being the person to mentor and really help other people. You know young leaders grow because i think we all need i myself you know consider you a mentor and i have benefited directly from your mentorship so thank you so much for that with that said thanks again for being on the show and uh, sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us today Anne. thank you and you're welcome
1: and thank you for inviting me
0: thank you for joining us for this episode of the slalom daily dose we hope you enjoyed it we are on major streaming platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. Feel free to download, subscribe, leave us a comment. We would really appreciate that. If you like this, please share it with other friends and colleagues on your social media of choice, whether it's Twitter or LinkedIn. And definitely remember to give us a like if you liked and enjoyed this podcast. Thanks again. And until the next time, stay tuned.